Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Welcome to Divergent Opinions, episode 19 for the week of Christmas. Can you believe we've done this for the week of holidays? Let's be inclusive. Well, I wasn't, no, see, I wasn't, I wasn't forcing the holiday on anyone. I was just recognizing that this is the week in which that holiday takes place. Well, it depends on how you do split your weeks apart. That's true, actually. This is definitely the week of holidays. Okay, fair enough. Happy holidays, Mike. Happy holidays, Colin. We uh, took a couple weeks off because we forgot to do one while I was out there last week. Did I'm in, yeah. Sorry. Have you been drinking spiked eggnog all day in celebration of the holidays? So I have some eggnog in the fridge. Uh, like and like I got, from a can or a carton or something? Like a carton, yeah. I got there I've about half of that. it, but uh, it's not, I mean, it's good, but I don't know. I Can I admit that I, I'm not sure I've ever had eggnog? Oh, it's really, it's good. It's chewy. Um, yeah, see, that's a li- that's kind of what I'm worried about. Serving size is like half a cup, like half a fluid cup. Mm. That that gives you information about what's in it. A lot of sugar. Yeah, serving size is like one mouthful, pretty much. Yeah, and then washed down with a glass of water. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like Robitussin, except creamier. Uh, I bet you could mix Robitussin in. That'd make your holidays even more cheery. Mm. Robitussin and NyQuil get both Christmas colors. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounds like a bad party from high school. Yeah. (laughs) Um, In Montana. Oh, poor Montana. They like that there. They like it everywhere. Yeah. Um. A lot of uh, stuff going on. Uh, before we get into other topics, one thing I, I forgot to bring up before we started recording is to regarding things. Um, there's a fair number of uh, Canon C300s out there now. And um, I know Phil Bloom's been running around shooting with one against the F3, and I've seen some other people shooting with it too. It seems like a pretty cool camera. Yeah, it looks nice. Um, so we saw last week... Oh, yeah, that's right. We did a Sony event. Um out here in the Bay Area. And so we saw the F3 and the FS100. And I guess I had kind of put placed in my head like the F3 and the C300 were like kind of the same camera, kind of the same form factor, everything else. Uh, they're not. <laughs> the F3 is a large camera. Well, in my mind, very I mean, large camera. I remember sort of vaguely seeing the F3 at NAB, but. In my mind, it had become the size of like a Z1U, which is sort of harkens back to the PD150 form factor, and so on. Well, it just kind of has the it has the exact same shape, and so you just sort of assume like, oh, they stuck a different sensor in the right. But it, it's actually like a 2x version of that. It's a chunky camera, especially yeah. once you put that cinema glass on it. Yeah, um, but you know, gorgeous. I mean, both the C300 and the F3 um, are pretty gorgeous. But yeah, the the C300 really seems to be getting people excited after what was initially a very sort of negative reaction from the the indie press. Um, You know, people were very upset about the price and the lack of 444 and or 4K or whatever. 
and now that people are shooting with it it seems like there's a lot of people who are lining up to get them it's almost like there's a bunch of levers that you can pull that affect the other variables in a camera <laughs> and that pulling them to get the largest numbers out of things doesn't necessarily give you the best looking image right and now i know that that's not the case but it almost seems like that yeah so and yeah i mean people are um doing tests at you know iso 20,000 on this camera and it's really good i mean it looks really good um and uh, just in general, it, it looks like a pretty gorgeous thing. And the codec seems to hold up really well, even though it's only a 50 megabit codec at 422. It um, really doesn't seem to be letting people down. I mean, that's one of the downsides of the F3 is that the internal codec is really only good for proxies. Is There's almost no reason to shoot by, to the internal SBIS cards, in my opinion. Like if you're going to buy that camera um, or if you're going to use SBIS cards, you should just buy something from the EX line um, because really... You know, the codec is, the camera is wasted on the codec. Yeah, I mean, uh, the sensor block is for sure. Right, yeah. which is, you know, something to take into account too when you're comparing them since the C300 and the FS or the F3 are approximately the same price. Um, you know, don't forget the extra five to 10 grand for a recorder. Yeah. So now, what does the, what does the C300 shoot do? It shoots to uh, internal compact, or SD, I think. Compact fresh or SD, but I think SD. Um, in okay, the, so you can take, you pop them out. Right, in the Canon MXF, uh, XF codec. Right, right. Um, oh. And then it also has an HDSDI out, but it's single link, um, you know, 422. So, and, and only 1080, so nothing too fancy on the output. Hmm. So. So I guess that's, those are the, yeah. Those are the two things you have to decide between. Right. Good internal format with you know low quality output or low quality format with high quality output right and also i mean the f3 will output once you buy the software keys which i think is a very bad trend in cameras um <laughs> once you buy the keys to unlock the features um to output s log you know the, the sony will output you know s log 444 or whatever um, whereas the Canon has something called C log, which is not quite a true log output is in my understanding. Um, and so, you know, if, if sort of you've got the resources to throw at your production pipeline and you've got crew, the F3 can probably deliver more in terms of absolute quality, um, you know, with an external record and everything. If you're a run and gun documentary shooter, the C300 is certainly going to be a more realistic option, but yeah, both of them are going to be a lot easier to deal with than a scarlet or a dslr yeah definitely no i think this i mean obviously this is a dramatically different price category from a dslr but you know in the grand scheme of things it's really not that big a deal yeah i mean if you if, if you're you serious set up a dslr yeah if you're serious about filmmaking you know spending what i think the c300 is probably going to street around 15 grand i guess i haven't seen u.s street prices yet but somewhere in there it's not unheard of yeah so and you're gonna you know then spend a lot on glass but that's the way it should be mm. yeah mm -hmm. so what other you want to jump into some stuff yeah, I mean, was there any other news that we wanted to cover this? I mean, let's uh, jump through all the news and then get to some of the media stuff. Okay. Um, I guess the, one of the biggest stories I mean, was a couple weeks ago now about Blackmagic buying Terranex. Yeah. 
Um, and then giving it away for free. As they seem want to do, yeah. Um, Terranex, which makes sort of neckbeardy standards conversion products. Um, no, it's not. Neckbeardy is not the right term. It's like. Well, okay, but it's. Production truck. Esoteric. It's not stuff normal people buy. It's not yeah. it's not stuff that people buying a $300 black magic card or cross shopping or something. It's No. Um but standards conversion, um frame sync stuff, you know. Automatic 3D generation from mm-hmm. 2D images, um, you know, PAL to NTSC and back with, you know, good quality noise reduction things like that yeah all the kind of stuff that yeah as you said if you need a truck or a studio or master control type situation you have something like this in iraq pretty much no matter what it might not be as i mean they make pretty fancy things but uh um you're gonna end up with something like this so they they took and they dropped the price black magic dropped the price on i don't know which product it was the vc100 or the one one of their products by 70 grand that was the headline yeah it was the vc100 yeah went from well went from wasn't it eighty thousand before? And now it's twenty thousand. Yeah. Well, it, it dropped a lot. No, it went from ninety to twenty. Yeah. So, um, so if you just bought one the week before, sorry. Um, but uh, for everyone else, I mean, obviously, Black Magic, or presumably Black Magic, wants the IP to roll into some of their other products. Um, but they've also shown with some of their acquisitions that they do keep sort of they they they're willing to grow their product line in addition to enhancing their existing product line. So. We may send him continue to you know building these boxes. Continue to yeah, it'll be. I mean, I mean, I don't know enough about them technology wise, but I assume that they're doing you know that they're in a similar you know engineering sphere to Black Magic, where they're basically writing custom cores for FPGAs, and that pretty much everything they do is sitting on, you know, uh, you know, FPGA IP. Right. Yeah, and I don't know. In which case, you know, being able to move that back and forth between, you know, being able to get rid of, I mean, the, you know, the real value for Terranex is the, the software that they have inside these things. Blackmagic, because of their volume, can probably produce a one year rack that has an FPGA in it for a heck of a lot cheaper. And so, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Yeah, I was just taking a quick look. I, I wasn't sure how heavily Terranex was in on the patent game. It looks like they have a fair number of patents to their name, especially in the 3D space. Um, so. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure how much it's going to trickle down to the, you know, high-end indie. Right. I guess what I'd say is, you know, if, if a company like this is going to end up anywhere, having them end up at Blackmagic is a, a pretty good place to end up. I mean, you know, Blackmagic's really firing on all cylinders right now, and I feel like they don't do the sort of um, the thing that some other companies do in acquisitions of sort of, you know, burying products and sort of wasting technology. So, yeah. Um, so good for them. Good for everyone there. Although you look at their boards and they got a heck of a lot more chips on them. Terranex does? Yeah. Yeah. wonder if they just don't know they don't need all those. <laughs> well, it'll be, again, interesting to see... Um, I mean, the other nice thing with Black Magic. Black Magic right now is in a conference room in front of everybody with a pair of Neil Nose players saying, we don't need this, we don't need this. (laughs) 
uh, one of the other nice things with black magic in, in their history with acquisitions is they've been really quick to turn things around into actual products. And so, you know, we saw with, with Da Vinci, which had sort of languished to some extent, they, they ramped up pretty quickly and we're making announcements about new products and new, you know, platform support and, and things like that. And so hopefully we won't have to wait too long before we start seeing the fruits of the Terranex acquisition, um, you know, by NAB, I would expect that they'd already be talking about some of the ways in which the acquisition is going to enhance their products. Yeah. I mean, eight their their switcher is obviously going to be the first thing it all gets rolled into. Yeah. Or, you know, their multi, what's their multi deck? Multi bridge. Multi is the multi bridge. The uh, what's the switcher? I think it is the multi bridge, but they have a bunch of different yeah, multi bridges. Yeah, something like that. But I, you know, standards conversion built into that. That'd be great. That I mean, because the multi bridge yeah. is an amazing product, but it it's always felt like it could do so much more. Um, or the video hub, I guess, is what we're thinking. Yeah, video hub. Yeah. Video hub. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only reason why we haven't bought one of those for our test suite is because it doesn't do standards conversion. If yeah. it did that we'd have one yeah video hub plus uh, yeah with that and um what i'd really love to see the video hub get and maybe i guess i haven't looked recently but i don't think they've added any way to get like um network-based monitoring of any input which is the other thing i'd really love is to be able to do sort of telestream pipeline style punch Mm -hmm. up any input um because you know it's more like a traditional matrix router in that extent if you want to preview a input you you know a Right. Assign it to one of your outputs that hooks up to a monitor, but it'd be great to be able to do that all via since since it's controlled via the computer. It'd be great to also do monitoring that way. Yeah, for them to stick a Terra deck in there or something. Yeah, on an internal channel. Yeah, yeah. But no, I mean that's a great product and and incredibly inexpensive compared to everyone else in that space. So yeah. Hmm. So that was big news. What else? came this week you want to talk about philip bloom yeah i mean uh you know <sighs> philip bloom you uh, enjoyed this stuff more than me so I'll well you. i mean this was an interesting case because philip bloom is a pretty popular voice within the sort of indie hipster filmmaking sphere you know the people who hang out on on forums and whatnot and on twitter um and he had tweeted something about how he didn't have an epic anymore he's he's had an epic and he's blogged about when we've talked about some of the issues he's had with his epic um but you know he's been a big supporter of of red and had a scarlet on order and he just sort of tweeted that he didn't have an epic anymore and apparently got some um flack for not saying anymore and so he he wrote up a full a full post about why he doesn't have an epic anymore and it sort of painted this picture of um after he after he made his post about uh the problems he had with his epic and he sent it back to red and they sort of said they couldn't find anything. And, um, he got like a nasty phone call from who he, someone he calls a higher up at red, a very high up at red, uh, which based on another form post, it seems like might've been Jim Jannard himself. I don't know. Well, Jannard's admitted it now. Okay. Um, basically saying like, you don't have any rights to talk about problems you had with this camera because it's a beta and you agreed not to talk about problems you had. And, um, maybe we just don't want you using this camera anymore. And, uh, just a very hostile sounding call from the owner of the company and between the problems he'd had and not feeling like he could trust the camera anymore. And this Philip said, you know, okay, I'm done with red. He canceled his order and sold his, his Epic. And well, they bought back the Epic. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I don't think Philip Philip certainly didn't, I mean, he didn't, 
come out of the gate announcing any of this. He just sort of mentioned in offhanded manner that he didn't have an epic anymore and certainly didn't seem to be doing this to try and get back at Red. Um, I, I don't think it planned to really talk about it publicly. And so it just sort of paints a pretty bad picture of Red in, in a number of ways. Um, so I don't know. I guess that's all there is to it. But then, of course, there was a lot of uh, hostility on the the red message boards and on DVX user and some of these other ones really nasty sort of uh, attacks on Philip Bloom and and um, red red did step in and sort of tell people to calm that down a bit. So I don't know. I mean, it's just you know fanboys. It's a small, very small community of very passionate people and. Uh, you know, they've put a lot of money into these products and as happens with anything like that, when when anyone questions the product that you've put a lot of money into, your reaction I think is to, you know, wanna defend that acquisition because you don't want to feel like you spent money unwisely and Right. Um so That seems what yeah, that seems like most of it. Um Yeah, I don't know. I mean Yeah, I guess it's it's strange because of the permanent beta status of the red, but I can understand the uh, I can understand Jim's. I mean, not his tactic in working with it, but his frustration. I guess, but I, I mean, mean, we've had that happen before, where you know, like, so a reviewer comes to you and says, you know. I'd like to do a review of ClipRap, and you say, great. And then they say, oh, it's missing this one feature. It would be great if it had this one feature. And then you go like, oh, well, that's something we're, you know, we're actually in the process of adding. Let me get you a beta. And you get them a beta, and then they write a review. This is like, oh, so I was using the beta version of the software, and it, did, you know, it didn't do this, or it crashed, or, mm-hmm. you know. I, I guess, but I, I, I mean... You know, this is a case where they are selling this camera. You can go to red.com and buy a camera through their online store and have it show up in a box. And Right. No, I mean, that the, I understand. You know, they're yeah, talking about that's, it. That's what muddies the water. Although I can also see, I mean, it would not surprise me at all that on a regular basis, high-profile people in the community are getting features added for just them. Sure. You know, like... When, especially when you're in this like rapid iteration model of software development, like I guarantee that you know maybe not the day it was dropping frames, but on one or two shoots, Phil had you know asked for something and gotten a custom version of the firmware written for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and there's you know that's that's the advantage of being you know so visible on the internet but the problem with that you know the problem with doing those sort of one-off things for highly visible people is if they don't work you know as software often doesn't the first time around right and in this case it was both that and also the fact that they weren't able to determine any reason it happened i mean i think that's the motivating factor between philip saying you know i'm he's not in the position to have a toy camera in that kind of price range and so i think you know he said if i can't use this on commercial shoots um, you know, what realistic option do you have? Yeah. Um, and I can certainly understand that. I mean, you know, and it wasn't, this wasn't the only time that he'd had a shoot, you know, negatively impacted by a bug with the red. So, yeah, no, I can understand why he wouldn't want to shoot with it. So, 
So I mean, they both. I just I think both sides. I mean, I can empathize with both sides. Sure, but it was obviously handled poorly. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, it's been forgotten already. Yeah, yeah. It's you know everyone seems to have moved on, and I don't think anyone is gonna die because Philip Bloom doesn't shoot on a red anymore. Yeah, red's got red's got the Hobbit this yeah. week. Yeah. To croon about. Yeah. That's not on our list. We should talk about that. Ugh. What? I don't care. You don't care? I don't know. I mean... So the Hobbit trailer came out this week. Um, it was shot entirely on red in the new, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's Peter Jackson? Peter Jackson, yeah shot in 48 fps and uh yeah it's so we're seeing the first you know like finished you know ready to show sort of results from that that workflow and that settings and whatnot and uh i don't know did you watch the trailer nope it looks like video i bet it does which which is what everyone you know was sort of saying going in i mean that's why we've never shot 48 Right. Yes, but Nick, you know, there were like, there were certain, you know, like camera moves and scenes and shots, which is like, yeah, Spanish uh, soap opera. Yeah. And, and so, I don't know, it's going to be curious. I mean, he's, uh, I mean, he's an incredibly stylized filmmaker. You would think uh, he had a good reason for doing it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it makes motion maybe tracking plays, easier. Yeah. Maybe that's just it. Or maybe, you know, maybe it plays better on a big screen. And I'm not, I mean, you know, most of the places they'll be screening this will probably still be screening it at 24. One way or the other. Well, I mean, aren't, I mean, a lot of theaters are still screening film. Well, right. If it's on film, I mean, they could print it 48 and run it fast, but I doubt they'll do that. No. And then even for digital cinema, I don't know what the state of cinema projectors well, so if one thing is any any 3D projection is sure. going to be digital. Right. And I'm relatively certain that those will all be at whatever frame size they want it dialed in at. Sure. Or frame rate, I mean. Right. So those will probably be 48. Hmm. But I don't know. I'll be curious. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see what it looks like just because of the, you know, this has been... You know, high frame rates has been something that ever since, you know, DV and FireWire has been something people have been trying to get away from. Right. But, but on the other hand, we've got this huge influx of cameras shooting 60p now in the sort of prosumer space and people are really loving that look, but, you know, in a large part loving it because of the overcrank ability. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I'll to, I'll take a look at the trailer. I've been sort of, I don't know, not that interested. But did you? How come? I don't know. I, I mean, I liked the three movies. I was I I've only seen each of them once or twice, but I'm not like a total fanboy. But I don't know. Hmm. I've been busy. Hmm. I see. Uh, what else do we have this week? I don't know if any of the other news is that interesting. Yeah, we'll probably skip that. All right. You want to talk about uh, 
you've got this uh, MPEG, new yeah, there, free MPEG light. Yeah, there were a couple posts um, based on some rumblings out of MPEG LA, um, and both of these posts are from Rob Glidden's blog um, regarding a new initiative out of MPEG LA to come up with uh, two different paths they're looking at for um, a royalty-free um, delivery codec. Um, so we should first say what MPEG LA is, which is they are a patent pool. Manage, they basically manage the patent pool for the MPEG codecs. Right. So um, like H.264 or MPEG2 are both, a, you know, a standardized codec, which is defined as, you know, all these various things that can be done to the video in order to compress it and what format things are stored in and how values are quantized and all these various things, how motion is estimated. And many of those, most of those things are held as a patent by some industry, you know, some, some player in the industry. And so in order to make this one codec that works and has all of these features, all of the various companies came together and submitted their patents to the pool as sort of a, and then everyone licenses that entire block of patents in order, you know, everything needed to implement the standard. They license it from this one place, MPEG LA. Um, I should correct that's myself right. already. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I should correct myself though, that it's not actually MPEG LA come, talking about this. It's MPEG, although MPEG LA is the arm that actually does handle the licensing are they related? Um, they're at least related insofar as everyone's a member of both groups. <laughs> four of four of the letters are definitely the same. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, they obviously are. Yeah, uh, but it's it it's yeah it's the MPEG group, the Motion Picture Experts group. So the group was surprofess there. Um, that's looking at. Um, two options for a royalty-free video codec um, really aimed at web delivery. And so obvi obviously, you know, the motivating factor here is uh, WebM, which is the Google open source royalty-free, um, there were sarcastic air quotes there, royalty-free uh, codec um, that they're pushing, sort of pushing, they were pushing and maybe have gotten bored with in um, Chrome and nowhere else really. Um, so it's in Firefox as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because, yeah. Anyways, so the two tracks they're looking at, um, one is taking old, old school MPEG-1, which is uh, royalty-free at this point. I believe to be royalty-free at this point because the, the patents on it have all expired because MPEG-1 is pretty ancient. And then sort of cherry-picking other non-patent encumbered technologies out of MPEG-2 or things where the patents have expired out of MPEG-2 and JPEG and research and other places to be able to really enhance this into a more modern codec, um, which is something like what WebM is. You know, WebM is an evolution of uh, an, an older codec, uh, an older sequence of codecs um, using sort of maybe royalty-free things, although there's more question there. Um, and then a second track they're looking at is um, taking H H.264 baseline and 
working with the few remaining um, live patents there to to come up with licenses that would make that baseline codec um, a royalty-free codec because most of the patents in um, H.264 baseline either have expired or will be expiring within the next year or two. Um, and so that would be, in an H.264 baseline isn't anything wonderful. Um, it, it doesn't have a lot of the more interesting features of H.264, but either of these would be a nice alternative in terms of having an open and standards body controlled um, video. Right. I mean, the method. advantage of, so this doesn't really affect, so when we say royalty free, we're talking about license, like people, there's two, there's two sides to that. One, people who create hardware or software that creates these, creates and so if you write your own encoder or decoder for the, these formats, you have to license the patents in order to do that. And there's another layer, which is people encoding into these formats are supposed to license them as well. Well, people right? distributing encoded files in this format, yeah. Right. And so that has been, I mean, that was something that was going to eventually be phased in based on usage or some various thing. and keeps getting punted right at this point they're down. saying 2015 but made pretty clear in their last announcement that they don't intend to really ever enforce it but it's something that gives supporters of things like webm you know a lot to sort of point to and say well you don't want to end up you know building your whole empire around a, a codec that then you have to start paying for um, right and so this is this is primarily to try to find a format that you can distribute royalty free correct yeah, I mean they, you know, royalty free across the board, but that's obviously the biggest concern because uh, because you know, I mean no one's going to no one's going to create an encoder or a decoder that can only do MPEG base layer, right? And and the payment, you know, payments for um, encode decode have have pretty well been sorted out. I mean, there's a long track record on that. It's the distribution that would have been a new a new sort of thing for most users to to have to deal with, right? Um, but one of the posts we'll link to in the show notes, um, this another blog from Rob about um, this whole issue is a look back at the H.264 process and why um, there wasn't a royalty-free codec that came out of that because originally that was one of the goals of H.264 and he talks about why it sort of um, failed last time, which is an interesting read for people who want a little bit of that history as well. Um, so, Right. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to have. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it would be nice to have, but I think another, you know, one of the lessons of it was probably about what a year ago, maybe eighteen months ago, that the whole WebM thing happened. I, don't know, I, I, I think so. I want to say sort of spring twenty ten, but when everyone freaked out for, I don't, I don't know what kicked this off, but suddenly everyone on the web was talking about H two sixty four and HTML five video and WebM and all this stuff. Um, and as happens with the web, you know, a month later, everyone had forgotten and gone back to using H.264 almost exclusively. Um, and it just, you know, Google was talking about removing H.264 from Chrome and they haven't done that. And it, it seems like the world has sort of moved on. And as expected, H.264 is the de facto standard, um, regardless of any of this, despite, you know, some fears that people had. 
Well, I mean, I think what happens is it's, you know, it's in the back of a lot of people's minds, but as long as it's not, you know, like you're, it's not going to happen in a vacuum. Right. You know, you only need to worry about it happening when everyone else is worried about it happening because that means people are talking about it. Right. You know, like it's not like tomorrow a press release is going to come out and say, you know, here's a web form, please input your credit card number. Right. We've decided we're going to start charging for all this. So as long as um, so as long as the internet doesn't hear anything, the internet doesn't have to worry about it. Yeah, and and yeah. So as long as MPEG LA isn't incredibly self-destructive, um, I, yeah, it probably won't become an issue. Yeah. Do you think MPEG LA will offer a patent pool for the the royalty-free MPEG? Um, I put my money on yes. Yeah, probably. And I don't know if anything, you know, at one point they were collecting patents to challenge uh, WebM. I don't know if anything's come of that. Not to challenge it, to license it. Well, yeah. They said, if you're using WebM, you can pay us and we won't sue you right. if we have the rights to. So, but I don't know if they've actually built that pool. I mean, that's a lengthy process. I mean, um, have they, have I, it's been a long time since they've litigated anything, hasn't it? I think so. I even for, even for their MPEG. Yeah, you certainly don't hear about them going after people. They're not like the, you know, RIAA or something like that. Right. I mean, because they're kind of, I mean, they're they're in a position right now where they ask people nicely to pay them, and most of the time they do. And uh, as long as they can keep that up, they're better off because if they do have to start litigating these things, one, that's expensive, and two, that's going to start scaring content creators, which is going to you know, erode their position as the de facto standard. Right. So, I mean, hopefully we'll just all keep chugging along. Yeah, which yeah. seems to be what's going to happen. Yeah, all indications are. So, But I would love a royalty-free patent, or a royalty-free codec. I mean, that's... I mean, it would certainly be nice, you know, because being able to integrate it into devices and other things like that and just not worry about it would be great. Um, right. You know, it's sort of like in, in gaming, some of the codecs that get used in, um, you know, codec games tend to use very sort of antiquated codecs, um, you know, right. in part because when you're distributing on a DVD, you can afford to throw extra bits at something. Um, well, and because, but also just you because you usually can't throw a CPU at it. Right. And... And also because you don't care because you have complete control of the software and the hardware. Right. But it's also if you're going to ship a fairly number of millions of copies, it's nice not to have to pay a dollar a copy to license a, right. a decoder and all this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting because a lot of the concerns over those sort of things is mitigated by it being open source or at least there being open source options. Because I mean, one of the things you really worry about with a with a codec is that someday you're never you're not going to be able to play it anymore. Right. Whereas you know, with an open source implementation out in the wild, you can you know you can feel fairly safe that you'll be able to find a copy of VLC or FFmpeg that can play back your file even in ten years, twenty years. Well, or if nothing else, hopefully you can find a copy of the spec and you could implement a decoder. Right. I mean, and that's, yeah. Whereas that's not so true with, you know. 
well, some of those. One of the issues with WebM closed source ones in that WebM was not developed as an open codec, and there there is a spec, but the spec was written based on the source code, um, right. and there isn't sort of a standards body driving it, and and so the spec isn't necessary. You couldn't implement a decoder just based on reading the spec, um, and it doesn't. It's not written broadly enough to be particularly future proof. Right, and the codec in general isn't really written to be future proof. It just wasn't developed with that in mind. That's fine. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, anything else on MPEG? Um, I don't think so. You know, it's always interesting to keep an eye on things. It will be interesting if you know. WebM ever really does take off. It's just, it seems like we're focused on other things these days. Yeah, it's hard to see that ever happening. Yeah. So FPGAs? Sure. I just, I, you know, there were a couple interesting articles over the last few weeks. Um, we've sort of come back around to FPGAs fairly often as just an interesting technology. Um, one that, that started this um, process was a um, release from a university research group. Um, I'm not sure where they're based out of, out of Ruhr Universität Bochum, somewhere in Germany. Um, they've implemented a man-in-the-middle decryption board for HTCP, the uh, encryption protocol that's used by HDMI, uh, using a custom FPGA. And so the, the way this works is that in 2010, um, the HTCP master key was leaked. Um, and, and even if that hadn't happened, actually, there's been some other research on reverse engineering the master key. In any case, so the, the decryption key had been, been made available, but uh, basically at the time, everyone had said, well, there's nothing to worry about here because the data rates are so high um, that no one's going to be able to decrypt this in, in real time using sort of um, by, you know, capturing the stream and then working on it. It just wouldn't be effective. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make right. sense you would to all do it that way. Off just, you, you know, encrypting on the source side, right. creating an unencrypted and then using an unsafe player to play out that unencrypted. Right, right. Um, and so what this group did is they, you know, took an FPGA and, and implemented a decoder um, in the, the board, and, and it's not a fancy board. It's, the, it's one of the Zillinix um, boards that we've talked about before. Um, and they're now able to do inline decryption. So you plug in HDMI from your source, and you plug in HDMI to your monitor, and um, the, the feed going to your monitor is decrypted. Um, so it's a pretty pretty nice solution, um, and it'll be interesting to see whether any of the sort of less reputable hardware manufacturers um, actually start spinning up boxes based on this um, this idea, because there is certainly demand for it from um, the home theater market, the sort of commercial routing market. There's, there's all kinds of people who get bitten by HTCP in non in ways that. Uh, it's not intended to cause problems or, or in, in ways that, you know, a rational person would not think it should cause problems. Yeah, you were saying this. I am not up to speed on this sort of stuff. I don't well, HTCP just, it, it adds an extra layer of complexity. And I even see this, um, I've got in my home theater, a basic HDMI switcher, and I'll sometimes have a situation where my Apple TV refuses to output to play a video back to my 
TV because they've failed to negotiate HTCP because of, you know, the switcher switched during a key exchange or something. And so the, the TV is not handshaked to the Apple TV. Um, Huh. In in, a, in more serious um, home theater installs, my understanding is that it becomes a real issue when you need to sort of, um, you know, split signals, extend signals, you know, route signals in different ways. Obviously, the the hardware has gotten better in that regard, but it it just causes a lot of sort of non deterministic behavior. Um, and then even more so on the sort of studio side, for example, if you want to have a Blu-ray player in your um, in a, a studio facility where you're playing out to um, SDI-based monitors or to, to, you know, playing into systems that aren't designed to pass copy control, and you're not doing it to pirate movies, you're doing it as part of a wider sort of fair use usage pattern or whatever, um, it just it crops up all the time in, in terms of a limitation that just doesn't really benefit anyone. And and in general, I just don't see HTCP being meaningfully useful because you know, who would bother to capture a Blu-ray that way? Right. I mean, there's just better, there's always better ways to steal content um, than real-time capture. Yeah, that is true. So, um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I would, I, I, it would be nice if uh, they, uh, you know, if you could buy a $300 box that decrypted HDMI. Obviously, there'll be some DMCA issues around that, but so it goes. Hmm. Be interesting if someone shipped a uh, a box with the FPGA without any software blown onto it. Make you. Yeah. I guess. We hear there's a torrent where you can get the uh, software for this. Who would do? It? I mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they'll crop up on the internet somewhere, but they're not going to be in Best Buy like the Macrovision ones were. Right. I mean, yeah. So the Macrovision ones, I mean, basically those were able to exist because that was pre-DMCA. Right. And, yeah, did, analog. Is there a... Did the DMCA not protect analog? I don't think encryption? so. Encryption? No. I thought it protects any kind of encryption. Mm, maybe. But, I mean, and Macrovision's but just, not really encryption. Right. Macrovision's just, you know, dicking with your... Uh, yeah. Black. Yeah. Your, sink. Yeah. Back porch. Maybe your auto gain, yeah. So yeah. But uh, even that, I guess. Yeah. The other two articles that I just was gonna throw links out to were related to another FPGA story, which is just on this uh, supercomputing cluster that JP Morgan's built using FPGAs to solve a very specific sort of end of day computational task that they have to run each and every day. Um, that they had historically run on a fancy supercomputer made up of um, general purpose CPUs and that would take between seven and eight hours to run each night for um, their typical You would data think load. computing, I mean, they're what? They're computing gross domestic anal rapes, right? Yeah. <laughs> you would think that would be an easier computation, but I guess not. Apparently. Lots of multivariate, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so they worked with a company that I forget the name of. Um, to build a f- much smaller cluster of 
customized FPGAs designed just to do this specific computation, and we're able to get their runtime down to the order of a few minutes, um, which I just think is an interesting use. Obviously, there's there's more people looking to do this sort of thing using custom FPGAs, um, and, and you can see across a lot of industries, um, you know, most people who are building supercomputers are building them to do the same task over and over again. Um, on, you know, obviously, if you're Pixar or someone. It, it's less practical, but if you really just need to run a, the same calculation on a huge data set. Well, I mean, even even if you're Pixar, it's not that. I mean, yeah. any time, I mean, almost any massive processing operation you're doing, all of your time is spent in one thing. Yeah, that's true. You know, you're not, you're not like doing different math every day. You're computing the same math for a billion things. Yeah, I mean, so... I, I added a link to this, which is kind of related to that, which is um, NVIDIA just, uh, I, you know, they didn't open source it. They didn't, I, mean, I don't exactly know what they did, but they took their, so until now, if you wanted to target GPUs, you had two for, for processing. You had, you know, we went over this in, a, in an earlier episode. You Basically, you could write, you could just do everything as, like layer-based um, image stuff where you just layer things on top of each other and add, subtract, mix in colors and things and get the results to the numbers that you wanted somehow. So for a small subset of problems, you could just do that. Or you could use um, Apple's standard, which is OpenCL, which lets you run math on GPUs. Or you could use NVIDIA's proprietary system which actually predates OpenCL and it was called CUDA and it allows you to do so on the NVIDIA chipsets you were able to do this sort of GPGPU is what it's called so it's you know running just standard math on what is ostensibly a graphics only card and so what they've done now is you know, until now, you you had to use their SDK and their pipeline to build these um, kernels. You know, the the actual code that got uploaded to the GPU to do the computations for you. So, the way you know the the code that runs on the card is assembler, and what they ran from was you had to write these kernels in this language called PTX, and PTX would then you drop it into a command line app in their SDK and it would convert that into the assembler, which could then be uploaded through their SDK into the card to run. And what it meant was, you know, there was no way to, you know, basically when you use their tool chain anytime you wanted to do computation that targeted the GPU, if you were using CUDA. Mm -hmm. And so what they've done now is moved that last thing, the PTX to assembler that targets the card to um, an LLVM backend. So LLVM is another thing we've talked about in the past. It's the low-level virtual machine compiler. It's a compiler that Apple uses for everything now. It's, you know, it's becoming a really popular open-source compiler. And so what they've done is in that compiler you can take code and target 
their cards. Um, they now it's not open source in the sense that you can just like go to the website and download it, but there are, you know you can email them and ask to see it. Um, and so it'll be interesting. I mean, what that you know what it sounds like we're getting to the point of in the near future is this idea of header uh, of basically having compilers that just by default you know in the same way that we have compilers now that will vectorize your code you know this idea that you can write an, a regular application without thinking about it at all and just say yes target the GPU if it's in the machine and get these heterogeneous they're called systems where you know the compiler compiles two sets of code one that runs on the CPU and one that runs on the GPU and handles which tasks get offloaded to the GPU and sort of marshalling your resources and having the CPU wait for the GPU to finish and download the data back to the CPU and all this stuff just sort of, you know, it's easy to imagine that soon we'll have these programming languages where you can just sort of write, you know, you have one language that you write your problem solution in and then it just gets run somewhere and you don't worry about it and it's just a lot faster. That would be nice. How far off do you think we are from that? Um, so I went to the the like yearly conference for LLVM this year. It was a month ago or so down in San Jose, and you know that was a large portion of the talk. There was these these heterogeneous systems. I mean, it's it's a research level problem right now. It's not a you know it's not a consumer thing, but you know people are starting to solve these things. So it, I mean, it sounds like it's not that far off. Were well, there some pretty wild parties at the LLVM event? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't go to that. There was a dinner. I didn't go to it, but yeah, I was a bit out of my league at that conference. Yeah, it sounds like a buy. It turns out most of the people who go to the compiler conferences write compilers for a living. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, well, it's, you know, it's cool stuff. It's, you know, always exciting when we, when people are doing real computer science. Yeah. So it'll be, I mean, yeah, I think it's, uh, I this mean, it's is good. This but, is you know, the more, so, go ahead. I mean, one, this shows that OpenCL has made, you know, has, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much of this press release is is basically NVIDIA adapting to what Apple's done. Right. You know, so one, they're targeting LLVM, which is, a, you know, all, you know, it's an Apple compiler at this point. They've, you know, a good two-thirds of the major team for it are Apple employees. Um, and then, you know, this is this is obviously a reaction to OpenCL and the idea. I mean, one of the big things they say in this is like, you know, this will allow other GPUs to be supported by CUDA, which is, you know, the biggest. I mean, a lot of people have had adopted CUDA because it was, you know, it it was much more mature than OpenCL. Yeah. And now they're fine, especially now that Apple doesn't ship NVIDIA cards anymore. Those people, I'm sure, went back to NVIDIA and said, like, so, funny thing. We spent a lot of time implementing the CUDA SDK, 
And now none of our customers can use it. Right. You know, this, you know example number one, Adobe. Uh, right. So who, Adobe wrote themselves pretty heavily into the NVIDIA corner. And now they're finding that, you know, it, they only see that speed boost. You know, they, they only get dividends paid on that on, on the Windows side. Right. And, and, you know, quite honestly, when OpenCL first hit the scene, um, unless you were really committed to the Apple platform, there wasn't a lot of, and, you know, e- even getting the multi-chipset um, support, the, the AMD chipset, the ATI chipset, uh, was less capable than the NVIDIA cards, even under OpenCL. So, um, you know, there wasn't well, a lot of pushing into OpenCL. Um, right. From and, I mean, I think that's still true. CUDA is a better is a more robust language. Right, but even in addition to that, at the at the chipset level, there was just not, yeah. Like you could do stuff stuff in OpenCL on NVIDIA that you couldn't do in OpenCL on AMD. Correct. Um, and so, you know, if you were looking at it sort of objectively, you would say, well, why wouldn't I do it in Coda and get cross-platform support and just limit myself to NVIDIA? Cause I don't know. It'll be interesting um, to see where this goes and uh, see how everyone sorts out. I don't know. Um, do you know where OpenCL is at on the standards body side? I know it was supported to Cronus, and I don't know if it actually was ever ratified. I don't know if it was ratified, but it's it's still a Cronus thing. I think it's as ratified. I mean, they take a long time to ever. Yeah. But it's it's as you know. It's out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's not changing. And it's growing some, um, and it's you know it's worth noting that OpenCL is all based on LLVM backends as well. Mm-hmm. So um, it's conceivable that you would just write uh, some C code and say, "I want this to end up on cards." Yeah, are they doing? Do you know if they're doing um, OpenCL in iOS at all yet? I don't know. Um, not that I know of. I would sort of expect that in in a coming release because the especially with the iPad two um, and the iPhone four S having these pretty tremendous GPUs, um, it would it would seem to make sense. Not only that, but I mean, there's been a lot of work. You know, the problem is most of the work's been at Intel with um, basically using. I mean, the nice thing about OpenCL is it creates a good separation model between your the stuff that you want vectorized and the stuff that you want to be you know just standard program code right and so there's been you know there's there's been enough work recently in from intel that you that i would i would consider for some problem sets writing an app that instead of doing my my processing, like the 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 like math intensive core of my app, instead of doing it on the CPU in C, doing it on the CPU via Open CL kernels, which is just a you know a drastically limited subset of C. Mm-hmm. Just because it does things, I mean, it basically creates a one. It's a different programming model where you just write for single operations and then scale, you know, single scalar pipelines and then you vectorize it across your data set which is a really nice way to think of a lot of problems right and two you know you just let and you let intel 
worry about all the the vectorization. And they've gotten really good at it. I mean, they seem to be, you know, they're saying the, they did a, a presentation at um, at the LLVM conference, and they were saying they were getting you know, like three, three and a half x speed up by auto vectorizing code. Well, that's and when you figure, and when bad. you figure you've got four possible lanes for most operations, right? That's you know, that's as good as you're going to get, you know, unless you're very good at hand coding. Yeah. And the advantage of it is, if you don't do it, then when AVX comes out or AVX two, when you can, then you get eight speed up because their lanes are twice as you know, twice as many lanes. Right. And you don't have to go back and hand code all your. I don't know. I mean, it seems like this is going to be the the future. Wow, it's not quite as interesting as everything on Beyond Two Thousand, but <laughs> like those uh, MREs that heat themselves up. Oh yeah, I think they have those now. Actually, though, they have all that stuff, but it just—it's not as cool once it actually comes out. Yeah. Yeah. That show was great. It was almost as good as Iron Chef Japan. Oh. Hmm. Chatter? Uh-oh. I'll get mine first, because uh, it being the week of holidays, but not yet the week of Christmas, depending on how you slice it, there's still time to order me a Slicktron RC. Uh, wait, no, a big-size Spy Hawk from Slicktron RC, available via Amazon. This is a uh, remote control helicopter, gyro stabilized, with a camera built in. And it records to an SD card, but can be remotely triggered from the remote for the helicopter. Um, I think it was really cool. Obviously, there have been a lot of helicopter-mounted RC cameras before, but this is the first one I've seen where it actually comes out of the box with the camera already in it and all ready to go um so you can have your own little drone go fly it over tehran see what happens what's uh, so what's the price on this 100 bucks really yeah wow yeah um i, I kind of want one now yeah um it's pretty wicked and i was also linked to an article that the verge did about a new national geographic show that was shot using um cameras hd cameras you know nice real cameras uh, mounted on I they look like versions of AR drones but they're not AR drones but some sort quad of rotors yeah, some kind. quad or quint rotor um, helicopters using DSLRs I think um, and we talked to a guy at that Sony event too who's doing this sort of uh, videography with, with cameras and you know I'm just sort of amazed at how much lift you can get off of some of these I didn't realize lots of rotors yeah so uh, I want one. I want to have my own little drone. Do you know, do those auto-gyrate? I don't know. I think so. I mean, this one does. Do they have enough? No, I mean like... Oh, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, like I think will that's they the come way. back? Will they, if the battery runs out, will they slowly hit mm, the ground? Actually, I'm not sure. I don't think they will. I don't think they have big enough rotors for that. I mean, the AR drone is designed with that replaceable sort of... Um, shock system so that you just sort of replace the styrofoam when it crashes yeah hmm well um 
I guess I am going to chatter about something. Hmm? Something that oh, I was going to chatter about another uh, uh, Verge article about Kickstarter. Oh yeah, that was a good article. Yeah, and it's, it's I've been thinking lately about I'm not sure I've seen anyone do it, but um, the idea of you know we get a lot of people who come to us and say you guys make great software what you should really make is an app that makes it easier for my dog to let themselves outside or say you know like yeah we get lots of these things and very often i say yeah, that is not a good idea and or like wow that does not sound like something i'd want to make and you know truth be told you know, one of those apps that someone came to us and said, you know, what you should really make is this app that converts M2T files into playable QuickTime movies. And I was like, that sounds like a stinker of an app. Hey, wait, that was me. No, it was uh, Tim Dashwood. What? I think you later convinced me that it was a good idea. But originally, so he came to us at NAB years ago and said, you know, this thing you're doing where you're taking the HDV camera and you're converting into QuickTime in real time? And I said, yeah. He said, you should make an app that just does that with the files. And I said, that has got no legs. And uh, it's, you know, turned out to be a great app for us. Um, and, you know, the industry's sort of grown into it. I mean, in, you know, adding... ABC HD definitely helped, but I mean, you know, at the time we did it, it was like everyone was shooting to tape, and so there was like one sort of unsupported workflow where you would end up with these files. And uh, yeah, I mean, and so one of the things I've been sort of had in the back of my mind for a while is like if there would, if there would be a way to sort of put these app ideas out there. Yeah, you know, so when we hear ideas from people, you know, the the thing that you always have to decide is if it makes you know, there's you know, there's one person who thinks it's a useful idea and who, you know, they always would totally buy it and they also are sure that all their friends would buy it and you'd be a millionaire if you did it. But just sort of some way to actually get real numbers on that. Right. And I mean you can ask people, but you know, most people will say, Yeah, I'd love to buy whatever it is you're doing. Just, you know, come back to me later and ask for my credit card and I'm sure I'll still be here. Right. And so I've just sort of been toying, you know, with this idea in the back of my mind of, you know, trying to run a software development project through Kickstarter. Yeah. Um You know, like when you have one of those ideas. Yeah, I like, mean, because yeah. the great thing with Kickstarter is that people are committing the funding before the development is done. Right. And uh, that, you know, they kind of deal with all the... They act as an escrow, although they don't yeah. even actually bill until delivery, or, or I guess until funding. Right. But just the idea, and, you know, there's sort of a... It's a known model. I mean, I think trying to do that on our website, saying, right. like, hey, you know, if you really want to see us make the, you know, app C, you should, uh, you should give us your credit card. Right. Like, I think that would probably not fly. And there have been some approaches to that, but I think not not quite in what you're talking about. So certainly people have done bounty-type things where users get together and come up with the, the pool and then approach the developer. Yeah. Um, and then there are things like user voice that are designed to let a community of users sort of decide features, but that doesn't have any sort of monetary value attached. It's just a way for users to sort of express ideas and discuss things and then decide what should be a priority. 
Right. And um, I don't really, I'm not really interested in doing a design by committee or, you right. know, I don't, or focus grouping an app. Right. But just the, you know, the, this notion of, you know, here's an app that we think, you know, we could support ourselves developing and putting real resources into. Do you agree? If so, you know, pony up now. Yeah. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. I guess I'm not sure whether anyone's doing that on Kickstarter yet. I yeah, I, I did a really cursory search and I didn't see anything. I'm not even sure they would allow it. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly... and you know, there's this weird, you know, there's this weird devaluation of software as well. I, I I'm not sure if you would get any blowback from doing it either. Actually, you know, a lot of people are like, well, software is what you write in your free time after you're done with your day job. Like, mm-hmm. Kickstarters for real things like that are made out of aluminum. I don't know. It's just sort of, you know, it's an idea in the back of the head. Yeah. Yeah, it's something worth thinking about and maybe worth, uh, you know, exploring a little bit more. Someone deeply. should try it. I'd be yeah. curious to see if it worked. I'll, uh, I'll let you know. I just I just funded my first Kickstarter project this week, so uh, yeah, that's that that and this article are the things that really made me. I've never done Kickstarter. Yeah, this this was a first. It'll be interesting to see if I get my uh, my two hundred and fifty dollar espresso machine. <laughs> you know what my you know what my bet's on. Yeah, but you know you're gonna be so jealous if I get it and it works and doesn't melt and uh, you know. <laughs> There's nothing else you can sell it for more than the, you can recycle it for more than that. <laughs> I I'm not sure these guys having a copy of Excel. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, that's obviously the big issue with Kickstarter in general is it's hard to know who has the sort of wherewithal to take something to fruition. It's you know, yeah. you can say you need twenty grand to get your your awesome thing off the ground, but to build my electric car. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. A lot of products are uh, a little bit more involved, but there have been a lot of great successes and yeah. a lot of things that have become commercial products. And 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 the other thing I would say is that there's a whole community that's grown up around Kickstarter now. Um, I guess that that Verge article mentioned that there are like fulfillment companies and other people who are ready to sort of step in and help you um, take your product from idea to delivery. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot of VCs keeping an eye on what's going on on Kickstarter as well. So. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I don't know. I would be curious to see. I don't know if anyone knows of a software project that's been kickstarted, or you know, I mean the closest thing I can think of is that what was that app? My Dream app. Oh um, yeah, that, that never, never seemed to sort delivered. of flop. Yeah. I think they did eventually, but it did was. Everyone had forgotten by then. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I'd be curious to hear from anyone who has any experience on either side of that. Right. Cool. You know, I think a lot of use, I think the thing you'd run into is a lot of, I think if, I mean, I think a lot of people would be surprised what it costs to write software. Right, you know, you know, but we because if we went on here and said like, listen, we got this idea for app, you know, at eighty thousand dollars, you know, we'll consider it funded. I'm sure we the hate mail would be great. Right, right. My kid wrote an iPhone app. Yep, didn't cost him anything. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's definitely true. I mean, and that's one of the difficulties with things that aren't tangible. And, and obviously, you know, I would guess that my $250 espresso maker doesn't factor in a ton of, uh, you know, human time and or profit. Right. Um, so that, that's more difficult than when you're developing something like software where we don't really have to pay that much for bits. We get them at a pretty good price these days. Right. It's on the coffee, though. That's true. Man. You and Dave were out here. and God. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I should believe mint or not what I've spent on coffee this month. Well, you, that's, why I, that's why I buy the, uh, the cheap stuff. Yeah. A couple of two pots a day for a month sort of ran up the cost of shishi coffee. Yeah. Well, just think how much more affordable it would be if you were pulling shots on your $250 espresso machine. What? Because <laughs> you would be, you know, drinking less somehow. No, actually, I don't think that's... I think espresso is actually a very wasteful way to make coffee. I think so. You know? But then you dump it into the the trash can you keep in the fridge full of water, and you drink iced coffees the next day that taste bitter and horrible. <laughs> well, there we go. It would be just like my life. A day bitter and horrible? And bitter and horrible. Oh. oh. Okay, I think we've... I think we've reached our depressing denouement. We can finish this up for the week. Well then, Merry Christmas, Mike. Merry Christmas, Colin. Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, so we just have to end now. I think we did.